Daniel Chacon. Welcome to Words on a Wire. Today, my guest is, actually, I should say my guests are, because there's two of them, two writers, David Campos and Maceo Montoya, who just collaborated on a new book of poems called American Quasar. Maceo Montoya is an artist as well as a fiction writer, and uh, David Campos is, of course, known for his poetry. And we're going to talk about this brand new collaboration that just came out with Red and press. So stick around. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. David Campos and Maceo Montoya, welcome to Words on a Wire. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. David, uh, do you prefer David or David? That doesn't matter, to be honest. Okay, I'm not sure, because sometimes people see me and say Daniel or Daniel, and that's exactly what I say. It doesn't matter. But Maceo, it probably does matter that we call you Maceo and not Messio. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I played on a soccer team, and it was like a, the 35 and older, the Veterano League, and <laughs> um, they couldn't figure out Maceo, so they called me uh, Masi. And um, yeah, I was like, it's a little bit too similar to Messi. And I was like the worst player on the team. So I felt like I didn't deserve uh, <laughs> that, that similarity. That's funny. Well, David Campos, uh, let me just introduce you. You are a Canto Mundo fellow. You are the author of Furious Dusk from the University of Notre Dame Press, which won the Andres Montoya Poetry Prize. Andres Montoya, who happens to be uh, uh, Messi's uh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sorry, Maceo's late brother. Yeah. Um, David, your poems have appeared in every journal that has good poetry. You teach English at Fresno City College, and you've been on the show before. Welcome, uh, welcome back, and congratulations on this book. Maceo, you are an artist. Um, you, uh, you do paintings and drawings, but you are also a writer, fiction writer, and a nonfiction writer. You have multiple books. I, I lost count after the scoundrel and the optimist that came out in 2010 and then suddenly there was deportation of wapa barraza you must fight them letters to the poet from his brother and now i think there's probably three other titles i don't even know about but i do know you have another one coming out um, or just came out preparatory notes for future masterpieces which i'm looking forward to talking to you on a on a, a future show but welcome to Words on a Wire, and we're here to talk about this amazing collaboration called American uh, Quasar, put out by Red Hand Press. The first thing I need to ask is why Quasar? As, as most people might understand, uh, if they Google it, if they look at the uh, Wikipedia, a Quasar is, is massive, this massive celestial body that just emits so much energy that we could actually observe it for, I think, four billion light years away or something like that through a telescope and it looks like a big star. Why, what is it about quasar and American quasar? What energy is it uh, uh, that you might be playing with here? Well, at least uh, when I first start, started to kind of like look for different titles um, or the possibility of a title. Um, I was really looking at the larger themes of what was going on in the book and what was going on 
with the writing in general. And there was a term that I read in some kind of scientific article. You know, I'm not a scientist. I don't claim to be one, right? So I don't know all the specifics, but I remember in this one article about these two like black holes kind of like circling one another and then colliding to become these like super massive black holes. And that some of them um, existed in the center of galaxies and some of them were active, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there was a theory that said, hey, uh, this is a possibility of why quasars exist. It's because while they are simultaneously bringing in and destroying all this matter and condensing it into very small particulates, right? It, it is also at the same time spewing out all of this matter. So it is both destructive and creation creating at the same time and i was just like this is this is kind of interesting right especially when you think about transformative moments or transformative or transformations in general right like the, then a supermassive black hole or a quasar is an in fact a transformation process um and so when i was thinking about american quasar as a title i was thinking about oh it's an american transformation right uh, a more particular of the speaker within the poems but e even some of the thought process that are happening inside of and, and you know and i get the sense as i'm reading this poem this book of poems it's, it's an assumption i have which could be wrong because my assumptions have been wrong before but that a lot of these poems were in dialogue with or were correlated somehow to the times that we just recently experienced with the George Floyd protests going out, going around all over the country during a time when people were afraid to leave their homes and the paranoia was increasing and it looked like maybe even the end of the American experiment. Are, is there some sort of uh, use of that energy in this book that contributes to the American quasarness? Um, Marcel is nodding yes, but I was like, to a certain extent, because the original, at least the draft, was written in like 2015, 2016, right? Um, so that was way before any of the, any of the current political climate. Um, but some of that kind of leaked in into this and and that kind of energy did leak into it i mean the opening poem is is kind of compiled from different images from the news right so on one end um i had what was going on um i forget well i love this line on uh the poem called your country where it says your darkness is too much like the centers of galaxies surrounded by the protest of the stars as they march into you in rebellion. I mean, I love that for you know, the imagery, but I also love it because you, there are metaphorical possibilities of applying it to the political landscape of, you know, it, which yeah, for the last pandemic years, it seemed like it was, it was going on to an extreme level, but if you're, uh, a Latinx activist, you know, this shit's been going on for, you know, hundreds of years, right? Yeah. So it almost no. seems that there's, there's, there's some sort of activism in this book that I really admire. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about. Um, well, I, I, I can speak to, so the original title was American House Fire. And that's one of the, 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 the poems in the book. And 
you know, I felt like that first draft, we were, we were definitely kind of thinking about, about decay, about burning down. And, and it's interesting to, to draw the distinction that David made between say an American house fire and an American quasar, where a quasar is also kind of burning out, but it's also generative. And that first draft uh, where it was, you know, with the title American house fire, um, this, this was the rise of Trump. This was kind of like the beginning of what has ended with, uh, you know, the pandemic and the George Floyd protests and, and, but it, the, the signs were all there. And as you pointed out, Daniel, those who have us who have been active and have been aware of these issues, um, n- nothing has changed, right? Uh, maybe the temperature has been turned up, but all of these issues have, have, have been there for, um, for, for generations. And so I, I felt like the poems were addressing, these issues, but, but in this way that it was like, how does the body internalize these issues? Right. And then how does that, how does then the body kind of turn outward and, and reflect upon the, the landscape. And in a way, and, you know, David and I have talked about this um, is, you know, how does that all kind of come together to, to form a notion of citizenship and how we view ourselves within, within um, the, the body politic. Wow. Well, it's a, it's a it's a powerful collection, and my first instinct when I was reading it, uh, you know, the the poems, uh, and the book of the, the the written part of it, apart from the the art, the written part of it, is, um, you know, it um, it it's a book. I mean, it's not just an arbitrary collection of poems. You know, there, here's enough poems to, 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 to make a book, but it's, but it seems like it has arcs, has dramatic arcs, thematic arcs. It has uh, interactive imagery, imagery that comes back. And so my assumption at first, David, was that this was your book before Andres, I mean, Andres, sorry, before Maceo uh, was involved with it. Uh, tell me about my assumption. You are completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> about that assumption. Um, it was initiated by Francisco Aragon out of uh, Letras Latinas, who reached out to Marcel and I and proposed this idea of creating um, a screen print that mixes poetry and an image in order to fundraise for the Andres Montoya Poetry Prize. Um, and Marcel and I met briefly at, when I visited uh, UC Davis. Um, and we talked about this concept or this idea, and we initiated that kind of process by going off of one particular line from Furious Dusk, which was on the precipice of violence and what that meant and what that really meant for all of us. Um, we left. We went our separate ways. I went back to Fresno. Um, a few months later, I created this poem. I sent it to him. And that's where that process kind of began barreling toward what came to this conclusion. So it wasn't, I didn't create an entire collection of poems and then send it to him. I sent him a draft of a poem and he sent me five images and I was just like, oh, okay, you're going to send me five images. I'm going to send you five new poems. Right. And it was just like this burst of creative energy that I felt, you know, that was coming out of our discussions. Um, so you like, you were like two different quasars on opposite sides of, uh, of the landscape, uh, uh, sending energy to each other it, and sucking it, energy. <laughs> it, 
It's true, but I guess, you know, again, the, the separation, right? Like, I, I, I feel like there were so many times where, you know, we kind of, not that we, you know, we fused as one, but um, this was unique in the sense that my other collaborations with poets or writers is I've, I've, I have, you know, been sent like the manuscript or the poems might still be in process, but it was essentially done. And the concept was kind of given to me and I responded to that. Whereas with David, we were kind of coming up with the concept together, not knowing where we were going to, to end up. And there's something very exciting about that because, um, you know, for one, we recognized um, you know, that the, the themes of our work and the way that we're responding to one another, um, that we were pushing towards, towards meaning. Uh, and I find that oftentimes our artists are kind of looked to, to like kind of match the meaning or replicate the meaning or illustrate the meaning. And that's less exciting, uh, than the process that, that David and I experienced, which was, um, we're both kind of pushing our respective language to, to search for that moment, to search for that precipice. And I think we may have let go of the idea of the precipice of violence, but for me, what always stood out was we were working towards that precipice. And I understand the precipice when it's, when it's comes to painting, right? You're, you're kind of coming to that moment, that ledge. Right. Um, and I think the same thing with, with, with poetry, um, is that you're working towards that ledge, towards that cliff to that moment where, um, you know, the whole, the whole kind of, uh, you know, Vista spreads out before you and, you know, that, that, that energy that we were drawing upon, um, you know, was, was, uh, was very exciting for me as a, as an artist and to think about Francisco Aragon, who has, uh, you know, a kind of visionary in his, in, in, in so many ways when it comes to bringing different people together. And he's had projects where he has commissioned all these different poets to write poems and then has commissioned the artists to respond to those poems. And those exhibitions have traveled the country. And then he's organized these ekphrastic poetry workshops to respond to, um, to, to the artwork and the, the traveling, uh, you know, Latino art exhibition through the Smithsonian. And so he's kind of done it like both ways. And um, I think it's, it, it, it's great that uh, David and I, through that process, um, were given an opportunity to kind of a, discover a new way of working together. You know, that's that's really important. That point that you're making, I think, because, you know, when we think of ekphrastic poetry, we think of a poet looking at a work of art and writing a poem. And I'm not quite sure if there's a term for it the other way around. Uh, uh, you know, a writer, I mean, an artist looking at a poem and creating the art after that. Uh, I, I don't know if there's such a term, but but when I was looking at this, I was trying to understand how the images and the poems that are juxtaposed on the on the same page as the images, how they spoke to each other. And if indeed they were the the art was a representation of the poetry or the poetry was a representation of the art. And I'm looking at this one poem called American Boy, which uh, like a lot of the poems uh, in this book just blew me away. But I love this line where it says, I want to call out the sky's real name, even though my tongue has been sanded down from years of hushing my own. It's a beautiful line. And to me, it evokes a little bit of Andres Montoya. Maybe it's the part about the sky's real name. There's some mystery in the sky that is connected to something way, way beyond what we could ever understand. Um, but I'm wondering, um, uh, um, 
it, when I look at the image on its side, it's somebody holding his head and he's screaming. And it almost looks like something that I would associate with an Andres Montoya poem. And I'm wondering, is there a little bit of uh, Montoya in this particular poem in, in, in specifically? And, and is there a collaboration going on between these two images or are they just juxtaposed uh, uh, for the sake of the, 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 the layout? I would say that Andres is a part of this poem because when, when you start thinking about you know the way that you generate writing, you're always looking back and maybe even subconsciously referencing mm -hmm. these particular writers or poets that you've read in the past. Um, and so they're always hovering uh, in terms of their influence on the way that you write. Uh, but it wasn't a, a conscious choice, if you will, when, when I was drafting this one. Um, and I don't necessarily know how we paired this particular poem with that particular image, but I just remember that particular image really striking me with this idea that when you have dealt with years of hushing your own name. How do you feel inside, right? Like it, it, it feels like in something that is overwhelming that you can't really say out loud. Um, and when I saw this particular image, I don't know in what part of the generation process, Marcel, that you created this, but I was just like, oh my God, this is exactly that, that kind of sentiment that I was pushing for, um, at least on the language side of it. Yeah. No, so the the line that's there, it was the it was everything kept inside writhes and piles. I think that was the original line. And I'm not sure, David, if you ended up editing out or if it's in another poem, but that was an interesting part of the process was um, you know, I would seize upon a line, right? I would see an image in it and I would I would riff kind of in a way on that line and create a couple of couple of images. And but then David kept editing the poems. My, my pieces were, were finished. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of the nature of these different, different mediums. Um, my, my work in a way was done in 2016, whereas David kept editing the, the poems and editing collection for the next couple of years, just by, just by nature of what, what needs to be done to see to completion. Whereas mine were very much, they were, they were, they were monoprints and I would ink up a uh, plexiglass and, and then I would scrape away and I have only a, a limited amount of time that the ink remains live on the plexiglass. And then I would run it through the printing press. And then it, it, you know, it's a complete experiment because you don't know what's going to come out on the other end, but then the piece would be done. And I mentioned that I had, you know, 30 something images that, um, that went along with David's poems and only 19 ended up in the, in the collection, in the book. Um, but so in a way that was like my editing process was as we read through, where is the image most appropriate? Where are those notes where you almost are kind of expecting for there to be one of these images that, that follow the poem or that follow the line. And there's a handful in there where there's a direct correlation where the, the poem has a line that is then the image kind of drawn directly from that. 
But I would say like the line doesn't necessarily need to be there because Daniel, as you pointed out, um, I want to call out the sky's real name and, and David talking about, you know, when one has been silenced, you know, what is the feeling that's inside? So all of you are drawn to other, other, other words, other language on the page um, that reflect this image, even though that original line has been, has been edited out or moved. That's interesting because, you know, you, you talked about, you know, David would send you a poem and you would send an image or vice versa. You'd work, you know, that. But then there was a certain point where your work was done and then the revision process started. And I'm wondering how much communication what there was during that time. And did you ever get the urge to say, OK, wait a minute, add another little stroke here or there? So the, the only additional strokes that were made was um, David came up. And I had him write out some of the lines on um, uh, like mylar, uh, which is like a transparent uh, 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 kind of plastic page. And um, then we actually silkscreen those lines onto the print. And so those were the only additions that were that were made where we took the poetry and put them onto on a couple of the, the images, not all of them. But, you know, I, I think that there was different parts of the editing process where, you know, I saw myself, I'm the artist in this, David's the, the poet, um, but I knew what that original kind of impulse was and what I drew from and what excited me. And so there were different kind of directions that David went in the course of the two years and he would send me a draft. And, um, you know, we all find ourselves like insecure about the works that we've created. And I, not that I had to remind him, but I was like, kind of David there, you know, what about this that we kind of like seized upon that we drew upon, you know, return to that. Or like, why, why did you take this out? Or, and I, I, I'm hesitant because I'm, I'm, I don't consider myself a poet but I knew, I knew what I drew upon. I knew the power that was in those poems. And I, I just, I had to say something. Um, but for the most part, the process was, you know, was, was, was separate, you know, David you know, finding his way on the page. That's, that's, that's funny because I could picture a scenario, which I'm sure didn't happen with you, but let's say that, you know, the, the poet writes this beautiful uplifting poem and the artist creates this uplifting image but then in revisions two years later the poet finds the darkness in the poem and it's this really dark poem but the image is like oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it wasn't that extreme <laughs> but, but you know one of the things i like about this book um is um uh the poems are are allow themselves to not blatantly talk about what's going on in this country and what has always been going on for people of color, for the oppressed. Um, oh, wait, hold on. Um, but that, that, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a Latinx book in the sense that it is aware at least I, I, I'm probably just using too many words to say it's political. It has its political component. And it also, in doing so, ties itself to Latinx Chicano literature from the past. And I'm looking again at that same poem, American Boy, with that beautiful line that evoked Andres Montoya, which could, in a way, you know, being connecting to the uh, uh, Chicano poets when Andres was writing, there was no such thing as a Latinx poet. We hadn't created that term yet. It was a Chicano poet. Um, 
And uh, but this, the way it ends, it says, I can't shake the tongueless boy knowing I will never grasp how to love myself in color. I love this line because it evokes two things for me. It evokes uh, what Anna, no, what, uh, what's, what's, what's her name? Um, uh, Lorna de Cervantes wrote in the poem uh, to a young white man asking me how I, blah, 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 you know, the, the, the poem where she says, uh, let me show you my wounds, my stumbling mind, my excuse me tongue and this nagging preoccupation with the feeling of not being good enough. This poem for me evokes that issue that has been raised in Latinx poetry about being socialized to not accept ourselves for our color. And it's a very powerful ending. It's a devastating ending. I will never grasp how to, how to uh, love myself in color. Yet at the same time, you could take it as color on the level of physics and on the level of how we filter color into our reality. And, and I cannot accept on another level all these different realities that seem to be coloring my landscape. Um, but anyway, I admire it because of its connection to the Latinx literary uh, uh, tradition. And I'm wondering if in the art or in the poetry itself, there were either conscious or unconscious arrivals at the awareness that, okay, this is in dialogue with Latinx literature and the political cultural aspects of it. Does that make sense at all? No, absolutely it did. Um, and I always think that when you're approaching the pre, when you're approaching the page, you're continuing a conversation that has already started, mm -hmm. right? And the conversation is already ongoing. It's going to continue after me, right? Um, and I'm just another voice adding my my two cents to the ongoing conversation. And this is kind of like a repeated kind of theme, right? About not being able to really see yourself, um, and because you can't. And what I was really beginning to grasp for myself was just like, hey, I, I, I've abandoned all parts of my uh, my parents' culture, right? Like I've, I've abandoned all the things that would color my life personally, right? Especially my childhood, my upbringing. Those are things that um, I rebelled against and I said, I don't want to be a part of. And at this particular moment in my life, I was just like, hey, you know, like bring back that color. Right. <laughs> uh, I want to love I want to be able to love myself in, in, in that particular color again. Right. Um, and so I, it was at that point where I, I started really to go back to the music that my parents would used to play. Right. And begin begin there. Right. With the music. Then it was the food. Then it was these other things that just continued on for me. Um, and so when I was thinking of that line, I was thinking about all those different aspects that I saw in myself, all of those different aspects that I had read in previous books and poetry, where it was always about uh, at least hiding who you were to a certain extent in order to assimilate, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think the that pull to assimilate and in this country is really, really strong, right? And what it means to assimilate for everybody else is, is really different. And do you need to assimilate, right? Can you be a bicultural person here and exist 
mentally well, right? Like, or what does that all mean? And, and for me, that was an exploration of that, of that kind of idea. And I, you know, as far as the connection to, to Latinx poetry, Latinx literature and art, um, I saw so the, the, my painting is on the cover of David's first book, Furious Dusk. And I remember when I was working on that series, it was, it was like these images that were, were very abstract to me. Um, the, the, the images are still recognizable, still, still realist. But as far as the, what was being depicted seemed to me very abstract. Um, it was the first kind of body of work where I wasn't necessarily like giving a voice to the voiceless, which is, is a way that I saw my work before. And I, I feel like I'm continuing a tradition um, uh, that, you know, from the Chicano movement, from my dad's work. Um, but these were just kind of these, these scenes that I would imagine happening in the landscape. And so the, the, the image that, that, uh, is on David's book is a group of soccer players in the middle of a field. There's a haystack, this kind of ominous sky, and there's a fight that happens. And the painting is called turning on one another. And it's not a scene that I ever saw. It was just like, I was driving down the road and I see those haystacks and I see the sky and I pictured what would it be like if there's a soccer game out there and there's just like this brawl that happens. And, and I left the painting and it was just kind of this question mark. Like, what does this mean? How does this connect to uh, Chicano art? How does this connect to um, the message? Right. And, and yet, David chose that poem for his book and, you know, he connected to it as a, as in a way as a Fresno story or as like a poetry collection and stories rooted in Fresno and his experience. And, you know, it's, it, it was one of those moments where I felt like I had to learn to trust myself. Like we as artists and poets have to learn to trust ourselves that wherever our imaginations guide us or wherever our process guides us in our respective mediums, that it will become part of that larger landscape of Latinx literature and, and art without necessarily consciously thinking about these are themes that I'm drawing upon that, um, you know, that, that relate or, or that one can, can, you know, recognize as, as, as the Latinx experience. You know, I've been teaching creative writing for, you know, I think when when David was still in, in elementary, <laughs> you're so young, man. Uh, both of you, I've been teaching creative writing for a long time. And um, uh, one of the things that I've always told my students and continue to tell them is that they don't need to write political work. And I didn't mean it the same way that the Creative writing professors told me and Andres, don't be political, because that we rejected that idea as cracker craft. That's what Andres used to call it, cracker craft. Um, but in the sense that if there is an idea that is fundamental to who you are and how you see reality, it's going to come out. And in that sense, I see the Latinx uh, uh, dialogue. I like what David said about conversation, you know, uh, entering a conversation. I see that Latinx, but, I, but that's not all I see. I mean, I see interaction with the stars, you know, and I see interaction with metaphysics and I see, you know, I, I see this incredible dialogue with just the whole idea of who we are and, 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 and where we're from. And it's, it's, it's not just that, but it definitely is part of that tradition, which is, you know, something that I, that I uh, uh, deeply admire about the book. And I'm wondering uh, um, what, your concept for both of you of the book was before 
and how those now that might have changed now with the with with the book what do you see now what is your concept of the book now does that make any sense mm-hmm. yeah i mean what was your vision before and how did that vision change in the process i i think um at least initially uh i think marcel t- touched on it earlier it was this idea on the precipice of violence right and we were just thinking okay what is this precipice what is that potential violence and how do we get there um and then that transformed into a different conversation about the process of generating the work because uh, we weren't necessarily and correct me if I'm wrong, Marcel, we weren't necessarily interested in res- in responding directly to each other's work, but more about the process that went into the work. I remember some of the emails I clearly was just asking, hey, how did you create this art piece? Because I'm really interested in the way that you're generating this art, because maybe that's the way that I need to approach generating the work. Um, and at the end of the day, it was no longer on the precipice of violence. It was more about this act of excavation and this act of really digging through um, parts of history, parts of yourself, parts of, right? Like he was seeking the light through the black ink. I was trying to seek uh, the language, you know, on that white space, right? Trying to see. That's beautifully stated. Can you say that again? He was seeking the light on the black space. To say that again, that's beautiful. So he was seeking the light on that white space and I was seeking the language um, on the white page. He was and, seeking the light in the black space. Yeah, on the black. Yeah. yeah, That's beautiful. I can see that, you know, it's like finding the image, you know, in the, in the light and then kind of covering the light to find the image. It, it seems like a really beautiful way to collaborate. What about you, uh, Marcel? Were there surprises in the book? I mean, did, we, did you yeah. ever think, wow, how did this happen? Well, again, I, and, you know, David, when he describes, we were, you know, we were responding um, to the process or we became very much wrapped up in the process. And I even remember David kind of experimenting with some poems where just like I was removing ink on the on the plexiglass, he, he would remove words on the page, right? And so kind of uh, whether crossing them out or, or leaving um, this blank space. And so it, it, it was, it was very much an experiment. And I think that we recognized what does it mean to remove? What does it re- mean to excavate, um, excavate our environment? excavate ourselves like digging into ourselves there's there's was a beautiful line and there's an image in there where kind of digging into the earth to find the stars you know and you know again what what does that mean when it comes to to the political or what does that mean when it comes to um the the current moment and yet you know, this was the lead up to Donald Trump getting elected. Um, This was, uh, you know, a tumultuous uh, couple of years and it continues to be, to be uh, tumultuous. This like all of these, these kind of uh, the sickness and sores and in, in our bodies, in our society. And, and I see David's work, David's poems, you know, kind of tapping into that, right? Like, what does it mean to, to, to not feel fully whole? What does it mean to carry around this weight? What does it mean to, um, to feel this kind of this, this sickness when it comes to one's relationship with their environment? And, and that includes the, the larger kind of political environment. And I, ne- I never, 
never in the course of the paintings thought that that it was somehow connected to citizenship. And yet, how do we how can we look back in the last couple of years and not see, um, uh, you know, that that that's that we have been carrying around this load that we have been carrying around this sickness um and yet david is dealing with it in in this way that deals with the body and also and also the stars and and i felt like my work too as far as digging away at the at the ink was focused on something very particular um but when you draw out there's all of these different connections to 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 the political landscape uh even if it's just the the metaphors David, can I ask you about the the, uh, the let's talk a little bit about the the metaphors of quasar and black holes and you you mentioned uh, that you're you know you don't you 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 haven't studied physics but I imagine during the writing of this book you know you looked into a few things as they as they became yeah as they started to uh, uh, uncover and I'm wondering as you were looking at these for metaphorical possibilities, were there metaphors you wanted to avoid and others that you wanted to encourage? Um, <clears throat> I think I was really trying to avoid uh, a lot of allusions to previous work, but mm -hmm. I, you, you can't avoid that. As soon as you bring in an astronomer, right? People are already thinking about Walt Whitman. As soon as you start talking about the stars, there's just like, oh, there, there goes another poet talking about <laughs> talking about stars. stars Andres, Andres Montoya used to make fun of Luis Valdez when he would do speeches. He would talk about the stars, the stars. <laughs> um, and there were many different aspects that I wanted to avoid, but I just I couldn't because as I was digging into it, I was like, okay, if because the the meaning of the book and the focus of the book kept kind of evolving. I was just like, all right, if, if I'm going to be talking about what it means to be a citizen, I should maybe even start mentioning um, parts of this country. And part of it was the flag. Right. And so in, in that particular instance, when I'm talking about your country, that particular poem, and then other aspects of this entire book, I was like, what's a part of this flag right here. We have, um, stars, right? We we have stripes. How can I interlay the, those images throughout the book? And what does that mean for me as a person, right? And what does it mean for us to look at something that symbolizes one thing for us as citizens, but means something else entirely to everyone else, right? When you're when you remove that context. Um, and so those were some of the kind of metaphors and images that I was seeking uh, when I was approaching the generating of, of some of the work. Let's talk about, if we can, uh, American House Fire, both the fact that part one of this book is called American House Fire, that the book originally was thought to have been, you thought it was going to be called American House Fire, and that you have two poems, American House Fire, the first one and the second one. And you know, you're not going to be able to ever stop your reader from applying metaphor to the house fire. Uh, again, kind of the same question. What metaphors did you want to encourage? I, I don't suspect you want to lock into one meaning, but what metaphors <laughs> did you want to encourage and which ones did you want to discourage with American house fire, this house burning on fire? I think fire, smoke, right? Like panic. 
um, was really the larger image I was helping to really inspire out of my readers. Right. So for example, I don't know, I just had a, I was barbecuing yesterday and I just started a grease fire. Um, (laughs) How do you get a barbecue grease fire? I thought that's only when you cook in a pan. Uh, well, I had, you know, I had different things um, yeah. and um, I hadn't cleaned it in a while. Right. And so it, it just caught on fire. And um, I was just like, all right, I don't have to panic because I've dealt with this before. Right. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> um, I wanted to inspire that sense of panic. Right. Especially in that first section um, of what it means to look at something and not necessarily feel like you know what you need to do. And so when I was pushing for metaphors, when I was pushing for these images that would inspire that, those were the things that I was looking for, right? How do I evoke panic in my reader? How do I evoke that that sense, right? Um, and then I went out and I searched for those in, in the news, right? In pop culture. And, and I started to pull from those. And one of the things that I pulled from was, I mean, American House Fire, that particular poem was inspired, uh, one, by the events that were going on in Ferguson, and two, by this um, TED Talk that I was watching. So I was sitting down watching the news, right? Um, Something was on fire. And then over here um, on my TED Talk, somebody was talking about that victory speech, right? That power posing, where you put your hands up in the air. And then I was looking on the news, and people (laughs) <laughs> and it was just like, uh, if you, you know, put your hands out like in victory, right? Like, and then I was looking on the news and people were holding their hands up, like trying to surrender. And I was just like, wait, you know, here's one image that means two different things, right? To do two different people. And that's where I wanted to start with, right? That's where I wanted the entire book to uh, initiate from, right? How can one image mean multiple things for different people? Wow, that's that's wonderful answer because you're basically saying that you, what you wanted to do was evoke something visceral in people, not evoke some sort of false comparison. You know, my 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 uh, my 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 babe, what is it? My woman is nothing like the, her eyes are nothing like the sun. You know, you don't want any false metaphors there. You just want visceral. And I love that. I think that really shows in the poetry because I don't ever feel like I'm being forced to read something in one particular way. Uh, and I feel like, again, that applies even to the politics that appear here. I think not it's not necessarily subtle, but it's not going to force you to read it in any particular way. What about you, uh, uh, Maceo, when it came to that house fire metaphor? What would you hope to encourage and what would you hope to discourage in terms of the, how the, the we would receive it? There, there's an image and there's a couple of them where um, the there's a figure of face kind of coming through the smoke. And um, the way that that was achieved was when you, when you're working on the plexiglass, um, it leaves, it leaves a ghost of the, of the previous image. And you could use that ghost to, to recreate another, another image. 
And so, you know, the, the face that's pictured there isn't necessarily, it, it's not someone in fear. It's not someone caught in a house fire. It's someone who has lived through generations of house fires, right? Um, kind of ghost-like emerging through, through this thick cloud of smoke. And, you know, again, the, 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 the fires in California were not as present in our mind um, in 2016 as they have been the last, the last couple of years, last year especially. But I, I think about just the, the, it's not fear necessarily when you're so far away from the fire, but you know that it's, you know, miles away and whole chunks, whole swaths of the state are being burned and it's the unease. And it went on for like two months last year, this unease of, of the, 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 the sky constantly with this haze or ash falling onto your car, um, the, the, the smell in the air. And just this idea is like, is this going to be forever? Is it always going to be like this? And so for me, the, the house fire, the, that kind of charge of a, of, a, of a house kind of crumbling down, burning to the ground um, is, is one metaphor. But the idea of the house fire that we're all living through, um, it, it happens slower, but it's just this, this eeriness, this unease and this anxiety that it creates in all of us. And I see that throughout the collection. Which is I'd much like more, more. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'd like to point out something that he said, right, about the ghosting image on that, how you used the, what was it, the, um, the Something kind of glass, plate, what was it? The, the plate the with plexiglass, the, the plexiglass plate, right? And how that image kind of ghosted. And I remember specifically in one email exchange, him detailing that process to me. And I was like, oh, this, this, this is interesting. This idea of a ghost that you can take one image, right? And then put another image on top of it, right? And you would still get something from it. And that translated for me into going through this book and say, okay how can I do that with a poem? And so you'll have American house fire and then American house fire too, right? <laughs> American boy and then American boy too, in which you see portions of the original, but now something else has happened and the, there, a transformation has occurred. Right? You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because in, a, in uh, the poem, uh, American boy, when, you know, the poem ends in, in a really, like, a, like I, I described it as devastating, you know, like I, I don't know how to like myself in this color, but then American Boy 2 is very positive. It's like, even the earth is jealous of my color, I think it was, or, or the, you know, the, the, the planets were jealous of, of how beautiful my color is. And so I really admired that. Um, and to get back to that plexiglass and the ghost image, that to me is a beautiful metaphor for what you guys have been talking about in terms of, of you know, being part of a tradition, whether it's the Latinx tradition or even whatever uh, tradition or just the tradition of art in general and poetry in general, that you are in communication with the past. And it reminds me of those, I think it was the Renaissance era. Maceo, you would know better than I do because I don't really understand art. Uh, I don't know a lot about art, but I know there were these images of building new civilizations on old civilizations and how that is a common metaphor for what we do artistically. And that kind of sounds like what was going on with that Pexi blast, the beautiful metaphor. And the image that I'm looking at now that you're referring to, which is juxtaposed with American House Fire on page 12 of the book is 
a very, very vague face. I don't know what the original looked like, but you know, it's it's very vague, but in its vagueness, it seems to have multiple levels of possible ghosts that are occupying that space. And so I think that's that that's really beautiful. And I'm thinking about that metaphor, and I'm gonna I want to ask you, both of you, artistically, especially as it manifests in this book. Whose shoulders are you standing on or what civilization are you building the foundation on names and, you know, whatever you can provide. Whose shoulders are you standing on? Am that's I asking big... really bad questions here? I was like, that, that's a big question, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I guess. I, you know, um, when I think about, uh, you know, where I'm writing from and whose shoulders I'm kind of standing on, I don't necessarily like to think about that way because it, 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 kind of introduces this idea of a hierarchy, right? Like you are standing on somebody else, right? I think this is why, Earlier on, I was talking about you're entering a con an ongoing conversation. Yeah. And I like to think about it in that way because it's just like I never started. I didn't start this conversation. Right. And I'm certainly not going to stop it. I'm not going to end it, uh, but I'm going to add my two cents to the conversation. And when we're talking about who show whose shoulders or who I'm in conversation with. Right. I'm in conversation of everyone who is writing currently right now, whether it's, you know, spoken word poetry, poetry in their journals, right, to um, people who are, are writing poetry in different languages and who are coming across this in that way. People who I read, people who I uh, look at when I go and see a piece of art, whether it's, you know, in a museum or it's a movie, right? <laughs> like movies are art to me, or whether it's something that I see on the side of the road, right? That says, hey, this, this, is, this is art, right? Like this, what I'm looking at is art. Um, and I'm thankful for whoever created that or even put that together or, you know, left whatever artifact was in that particular composition in order to evoke that, that particular image. And so when I'm thinking about how all of this is putting together, who I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about everyone that I've read, everyone that has influenced me um, in order for me just to like put in my two cents. I want to make sure that, I'm thankful for everyone that uh, I've noted, but I do have two notes in the book, right? Like two direct notes of people who had direct influence on two of these poems. One was Yusef Kumanyaka and the other one was Mark Statman. Um, those are very direct influences of people that I wanted to have a conversation with in, in the writing of the poems. That's that's a beautiful answer, and I love what you're saying about the the standing on the shoulders of giants, which which really is a very, you know, uh, white European metaphor when it talks about our antepasados. You know, like that it has to be some giant male, white male, holding us up. You know, and I think it is. You know, it is kind of uh, antiquated, and so maybe a better way of saying it is. If this book brought you to a crossroads in the imaginary realm and in the crossroads, there was an image that struck you, who would be 
on the other side of the crossroads looking at the same image. Who would, whose spirit did you find in the work as you were creating this, this art, I guess? Does that make sense, Maceo? Yeah, you know, and I, I'm glad that David, that you answered first because it gave me some time to think about it. And, you know, it should be such an immediate question, um, right? Who are you drawing upon? Who are your influences? But, you know, it, it really, it kind of, it trips me up. I, I think if you had asked me in regards to my novels, right? Like what what tradition am I borrowing on, borrowing from or, or drawing upon, uh, you know, building upon, uh, I, I would have the authors, I would have the, I would have a way of articulating <laughs> it, but but there, there's something about my artwork that is so deeply kind of like personal and physical. And I, you know, I know that I have a connection, connected thread to, to my father, to my family, to the artists that, um, that I've been surrounded by many of them, other, other Chicanx artists. Um, I know the, the, the realist, uh, painters and, and lithographers who, who have inspired my work, uh, you know, going back, uh, you know, through, you know, several hundred years, that tradition that I draw upon. But, but when I actually think of like, what, what is it that I'm building? What is it that I'm creating? Um, it feels so kind of deeply internal. And so when you say, who is the person on that, the crossroads who is like staring at the work, um, it, it's, it's really weird to say, but it's like, it's myself, a different iteration of myself. And I have felt at times like very adrift with my work, right? Like once, once my work is severed from uh, kind of Chicano art, like what does it then become, right? Me alone in my studio, like facing the blank canvas, what is it that I create? And I feel like I've been facing that question for, for several years now. And what has kind of saved me in a way is these projects like with David or with Lorian Guerrero, or I created a body of work based on the poetry of uh, Mario Santiago Papasquiaro is like, I, I haven't had to kind of answer that question so directly. I can draw upon the language and the imagery um, of others to create my own. But um, that feeling of, of uh, am I empty of images is is something very frightening and it's actually a conversation that i have with my dad who is about to turn 83 and you know towards the end of his life and asking that question am i empty of images and i i feel like an artist kind of always has to ask themselves that am i empty of images and if not where am i going to draw from and i i i think that is more immediate or pressing than any sort of uh, you know, what tradition am I drawing upon or what, what am I inheriting or whose shoulders am I standing upon? It's like, it's really, what is it in this moment that I can create? Wow. Wow. These are, these are, these are, those are both great answers. Uh, I want to ask you one thing, uh, one more thing, uh, David, you have this beautiful line, astronomers ain't much different from a coroner. It's from the poem, Discovery of a Quasar. Can you talk a little bit about that line, maybe unpack it? And I love that you use ain't in that language. I mean, that, that just shows how precise you are as a poet. An astronomer ain't much different from a coroner. Can you talk a little bit about that line? Well, when I was part of my basic research into astronomy, right? <laughs> uh, and so I was thinking when we're looking at the stars, right, we... We don't know if they're still there, 
right? right? Because of how long the light takes to, to reach us. Um, and so I was really just kind of mind blown by this idea that you could be looking at galaxies. You can be looking at stars that are dead, right? And so to a certain extent, you are much like a coroner. You're looking at a, a dead body, right? A dead celestial body. And um, whether you're looking at it in, in pure interest or, or thinking about its life, right? Um, when I think about a coroner, right? They're trying to figure out um, what happened during the life in order to end it. And when I think about astronomers, right? I think about people looking out into, um, into the heavens, trying to figure out, you know, how is this all going to end, right? And to a certain extent, right, that's, that's, that's kind of where that line came from. Um, and why I used ain't was because I wanted to make sure, right, like being an astronomer or being a corner, corner, uh, corner is so professionalized. You kind of, it's so removed from, you know, the day-to-day -day language that we use. And it's just like, okay, how can I bring that down to something that I would have said, you know, when I was, you know, 18 or 20 or 21, where I was just using the language that I know to talk about these big ideas. And I was just like, okay, let's bring it down to something that even I still use today when I don't use my professional, yeah. you know, voice or my professional language where I'm like, all right, an astronomer ain't much different from a corner. Right. You know, and, and, and there's something pure about the observation by using the word ain't, you know, something that was just, uh, yeah, it's perfect, perfect word. Would you be, before we go, would you be willing to read one of the poems? Sure. Do you have a suggestion or a request? Well, I really liked American Boy, but I've read most of it already. So maybe um, how about the, um, the discovery of a quasar, where that line is from? Or, but any poem you want, actually. Oh, you know what? How about Slow Religion? I love that poem. Slow religion. Uh, slow religion. In fact, there was a passage I wanted to ask you about that really struck me, but maybe you could read that. It's on page 79. Absolutely. And slow religion. The, 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 the next image is, it looks like uh, people in a church. I'm not sure if that's what that is, Maceo, but it seems to really be as haunting as the poem we're about to hear. Go ahead, go ahead. Slow religion. This is what your father's arms say when they hold you. What if yesterday broke open like your face did in your parents' dining room and no one looked, no one important, at your slow rapture? What if yesterday dragged its fingers across the city and into the necks, plucking those high electric wires, music falling out of each socket? But all you heard was a slow religion of your mouth, the syncopated breaths between sobs. And what if yesterday embraced the terror of resentment like your lips did? What if yesterday was nothing but a husk, the leftovers you keep wrapping in tin foil and keeping inside the fridge? What if you acknowledged yesterday, the cold and the way things slowed down right before impact? What if today's wreckage began to study music again? Middle C, the major chords, sweaty palms on a first date, 
a kiss on the lips, no longer just pecks of memory? What if through the wreckage you learned the architecture of music? What if the wreckage, the carnage, the catastrophe was your music? That was David Campos reading Slow Religion from his new book in collaboration with the artist Maceo Montoya, American Quasar. Maceo, I'm wondering if you could comment on the, the, the juxtaposed image. Is that an image that went with this poem? So the, the image, um, it, it originally went with the line, and this is kind of, I think, how the different beats that kind of repeat throughout the, the book. And so that, that poem that David just read, it comes towards the end, and so does the image. Um, but the actual line, I think, that inspired it was from a poem early on, My Tongue Has Been Sanded Down. And David writes, Now I speak in the glances my father has given me in church. The communion goes uneaten. There is no tongue to taste salvation. And I think I, you know, interpreted it pretty literally and, you know, placed the scene in a church. Um, and as you said, these kind of ghost-like figures that are there. Uh, and it's just the priest, priest kind of giving communion. And, um, and yet, you know, when we're rearranging the, the images and thinking as you're reading through, you know, this kind of expectation of what's to come, it felt like it, it, uh, it, it, it corresponded and that it went well with, uh, with slow religion. Though you said earlier that this was originally a project inspired or suggested by Francisco Aragon to raise funds to have a, a maybe a broadside with an image or or something like that or, or or an image with a quote from the poem. Are did those ever happen and are they available for people to buy? No. So in, well, when we decided that we were going to be creating this book, um, part of when we approached presses um, was that we would like for the proceeds to go to the Andres Montoya Poetry Prize. And so it still becomes a, a fundraiser of sorts, even though it was different from, uh, you know, the, the print project uh, that Francisco had originally conceived. The book is called American Quasar and you can get it wherever good books are sold. <laughs> uh, any last Minute, anything you'd like to say before we, uh, we we say goodbye? Anything about the poem or about uh, anything? What you're working on now? What you uh, what you guys are going to do to get this book out there? I think if you buy it directly from us, we would greatly appreciate it. You can go and visit davidcampos.me. Um, and I have a page on there where you can buy it directly from us. That way, more proceeds go towards um, the fundraising for, for both of the prizes, right? So 50% of the proceeds will go to the Andres Montoya prize and 50% um, will go to Red Hen's second and third book prize by a Latinx writer. So um, all of the profit is going to go directly back into funding uh, Latinx letters. I'd like to thank David Campos or David Campos and Masi Montoya. <laughs> Just kidding, Maceo Montoya for joining me on Words on a Wire. The name of the book is American Quasar. Please buy this book and please buy books, as many as you can. I'm Daniel Chacon. See you next week on Words on a Wire. Mm -hmm.